Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Hellgate podcast brought to you by your favorite workaround New York City news site. You can check us out online at hellgatenyc.com. I'm Nick Pinto, one of the worker owners at Hellgate. This week, we're talking about a question that's become one of the most contentious issues in New York politics. Are we sending enough people to jail before they've had a trial? I was 17. I just turned 17. Uh, I got to Rikers in July of 2016, and I had to wait there for a whole another year, almost two years, to get a date for trial. Battles over bail reform, pretrial detention, and closing Rikers Island have been roiling city and state government for several years now, and they're far from over. Later in the episode, I'm going to talk with someone who's been following this fight from the beginning about how some very technical details of criminal justice policy became such a political live wire. But first, to get a sense of what's at stake when we talk about pretrial detention, I'm going to talk with my colleague Max Rivlin-Nadler about a case he's been following. Hey, Max. Hi. So, in May, right after Hellgate launched, we published a story you wrote about the case of Prakash Churaman, someone who grew up on Rikers Island. How did he get there? He was about to go on trial for felony murder for a second time. He was 22 when we talked, but police said he committed this crime when he was 15 years old. During his time in the criminal justice system, he spent over four years on Rikers Island, the first time when he was 16. And after my reporting, the charges against Churaman were dropped. That's crazy. What made you want to look into this case and what did you find? Our reporting found that the two detectives who led the case against Turaman, Barry Brown and Daniel Gallagher, had also been involved in another murder case in Queens, at the same time as Turaman's. In that case, the two detectives hid or ignored exculpatory evidence, that means like evidence that proves these guys didn't do it, for years. So two men spent a combined five years on Rikers Island even though the whole time the NYPD had cell phone evidence showing they were miles away from where the murder was committed. So at the same time that detectives are saying Churaman did a crime he was claiming he didn't commit, the same thing is happening to these two other men. Those two men eventually sued the city, which settled for around $2 million. But, you know, if they hadn't sued, I don't know if anyone would have known about that case. I I saw the case just like on the federal docket, And was like, wow, there are some really interesting names here in terms of detectives. So once I started writing about possible misconduct by those detectives, uh, the case against Churaman began to finally fall apart. I've written a few more stories that show that this actually isn't just a rare occurrence, especially in Queens. What do you mean, especially in Queens? Why is this more common there? Pretty much the job of cops is to make an arrest. They can use statements, eyewitness testimony, but ultimately their job is to make an arrest. And that's it. After that, the rest is up to prosecutors. And that's where you run into a problem in Queens especially. And I've heard this from lawyers across the city. There's just no urgency. There's a super high turnover in the office and not a lot of attention is being paid to defense lawyers trying to get in touch with prosecutors to tell them that their clients have evidence that would set them free. So that's one way you end up with thousands of people sitting in Rikers Island, waiting for their lawyers to get evidence from prosecutors so they can decide how strong that evidence is, whether they want to take a plea deal, go to trial, or if the evidence says so, make a motion trying to get a judge to dismiss the case because there's clear exonerating evidence. 
But that actually only happens when a prosecutor picks up the case file. In some cases, that can take years. Prosecutors often really like do not look at case files until right before trial. And like I said, in Queens, speed is not exactly the priority. So in that office, it's usually like the third or fourth prosecutor who's been assigned to that case who actually might take it to trial. And in the meantime, people are either reassigned or leave the office. That whole time, that file is sitting on a desk. A defendant is just stuck on Rikers Island. And maybe instead of waiting for your day in court while you're in like the hellhole of Rikers Island, maybe you want to just like accept a plea deal so you can get out of there. And if it's like an armed robbery or an assault and you know that you're going to be stuck on Rikers this whole time anyway, like maybe you start asking your lawyers for a plea deal, because even if that means you're going to go upstate and believe me, those prisons are not nice either. That means you're going to get the hell out of Rikers Island. So even if you like actually might be innocent or would have beaten the charges, you just take the deal. This is one of the side effects of Rikers being the humanitarian disaster that, that we know it to be, that in addition to being an incredibly dangerous place where you're likely to get physically hurt and have your mental health diminished and all sorts of other things, that also functions as an incentive for you to take plea deals when you might not otherwise, just to get out of these horrific conditions. So what happened with Churaman? How did he end up on Rikers? A little bit about Prakash Churaman. Um, he's born in Guyana and came to New York with his mother when he was pretty young. Um, he had a rough childhood, and when he was 15, he was arrested for allegedly taking part in a robbery where one person was shot and killed and an older woman was held hostage. The NYPD said they were able to identify Prakash Sherman based on an ear witness. The robbers were wearing masks, so there was no way for the victims to identify them. But the hostage said that she recognized a voice of one of the robbers as Churaman's. Then Churaman confessed after hours spent being interrogated where detectives Gallagher and Brown, who I mentioned earlier, brought his mom in to beg her son to confess. Wait, wait, they brought his mom in? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but that's that's kind of a common tactic for youths and confessions. Cops get the parents on board with them. So like the cops are working together with the parents and they say, oh, just just confess and nothing bad will happen to you. And what they're doing is they're using both the kids and the parents. They're using the parents to break the kid. And the parents don't realize that what they're doing is actually signing up their kid to, to go to jail. Right. I mean, they're in the dark, too. What they don't know is that felony murder doesn't mean you yourself killed someone. You just had to be part of a crime when somebody died. Uh, I watched the tape and it's it's incredible how they use his mom, who is just trying to get to work that morning. She thinks this will all be cleared up after that. It was small, man. And there was just like one little window and like the window you can't really see through. Like they're watching you and. They had some tapes rolling, obviously, just filming you, filming me every every step of the way. And it felt like a white, creamish room, but, like, the lights was bright, you feel me? So, like, all of that was just, like, just there, like, the structure of that room is designed and established to, like, mentally deteriorate your brain and your physical body to, like, let you know, like, we got you, basically. So once they get that confession, it moves pretty slowly, as things do in the criminal justice system. Churaman's teenage years were first spent at a juvenile facility, and then he went to Rikers Island when he turned 16. 
After two years on Rikers, he was found guilty of felony murder and sent to the Great Meadow Correctional Facility in upstate New York. So when he was there, he got his conviction overturned in 2020 by an appeals court because the judge the appeals court found had excluded expert testimony regarding the reliability of youth confessions. Wait, why would the judge do that? Is that legal? Well, right. On appeal, they didn't think it was legal. But yeah, it's Queens, right? So the judge on this case was a former prosecutor in Queens. The people prosecuting this case were his literal ex-co-workers. So the judge in his rulings was pretty favorable to prosecutors and uh, in fact got really mad at me for my reporting on the story, even saying vague things in court like he knew facts about this case that would shock the public. Usually judges really aren't supposed to make comments about that kind of stuff. So after his appeal was successful, did Sherman get to go home? Well, no, because once your case gets overturned, well, you got to have a retrial and he goes right back in front of that same judge. And that same judge didn't want to grant him bail. So at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, Sherman was sent back to Rikers to await yet another trial. And he stayed there another year until he was released back to Queens on home confinement. Um, And they had to once again go to a higher court to file a a bail appeal. And that takes a lot of time and energy from public defenders. And that's where I met him. Um, After he'd gotten home on home confinement, he was living with his mom in like this small house, really in this like wild liminal area just off of JFK Airport, pretty much in the marshes of Jamaica Bay. What was Charman's experience of Rikers like? Yeah, so... As he told me then when he was finally through Rikers, it was really bad. He, he tried to kill himself at least once, and he, he spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. Here's how he described it then. Horrendous, man. Um, it was just like a total catastrophe like to me. Like, I was so like, nervous like, and just scared. Like, you hear all these different stories about this place, and it's like, damn, I'm actually here now. I'm here now. And then I'm actually witnessing this shit. I'm witnessing all these crazy things happen, and I'm like, wow. And then I, my first encounter where I had to, like, defend myself, basically, like, it was bad because I had, like, it was basically, it was only me by myself, and I didn't really know nobody. Rikers Island, I'm going to be honest with y'all, is you just got to, like, know somebody that knows somebody, like, basically, or it's either you got to get down with whatever crew's in the unit that you win. So it's either, like, you, you get down or you get packed up, like, that's it. And that's how Rikers Island is. And now you got people inside the city committing suicide every day on Rikers Island. Violence is going to find you, and it's all up to you how you respond to the violence. That is horrible and also pretty much in line with a lot of the reporting that I've done on Rikers. That's kind of typical of what you hear from people who've, who've been through there. So pretty soon after Sherman gets his first case overturned, He gets an offer by the Queens district attorney, Melinda Katz, that he can plead to a lesser charge and go home. But that's not what happens. No, uh, Sherman, despite being back on Rikers, uh, declines to take the plea deal. He says he can't do it because, you know, he's innocent. And even if that means he has to spend more time in jail, uh, in danger, and maybe even go to prison for the rest of his life, uh, he's going to take that risk. I said no. I said, I'm going to trial. See, they are going to drop the charges against me, dismiss this indictment against me, or we go to trial because I'm innocent. I'm not taking no deal. I don't care if they gave me time served right now. I'm not taking a deal. 
So it really shows just how much New York City prosecutors use the threat of continued time at Rikers to get people to plead guilty. It's like a punishment that you're not going along with what they want you to do. So what was different for him the second time he was at Rikers? Because that, that's a pretty interesting experience to see Rikers directly on either side of the pandemic. Yeah, so the New York Times never wrote about his actual criminal case, which, you know, I found fascinating. But they did interview him about conditions inside of Rikers. And at the time, he was raising the alarm about the mental health of people inside the jail during the height of the pandemic when, like, all visitation was closed down, most programming ended. And and especially at that time, it really seemed like hellish. Yeah. And not everybody survives that experience. Yeah, he he did. I mean, mostly I, I was there when he found out his charges were being dismissed in June. He was walking through the halls of the Queen's courthouse shouting things like, I'm free, I I can do whatever I want. You know, it was really just settling into him. And that was a really great day. He, He got to celebrate and he has a kid now, too. But what happens now is like really hard. He's filed a lawsuit against the city, but that's going to take a few years before anything settled or any money would come his way. So how's he doing now? I caught up with him by phone a few weeks ago and... He's currently spending some time outside the city, and we just had a really honest conversation about the pretty tough time he's having. It, it, it feels good to be, you know, I, this is the best way to, like, for me to describe it, Max, is like, it, you know, it feels good, bro, to, to, like, be, to be vindicated, bro, and all, but it's like, like, mentally, bro, like, I'm not free, you know? I'm not free, Max, you know? I'm not free mentally, bro. I'm free, yeah. Like, it, it, like in a court of law, like, you know, in reality, yeah, I'm free, bro. How does somebody live a normal life after something like this? I don't think he really does, right? Like, he went to jail when he was 15. He's 23 now, but... He missed everything, everything important that you get in your teen years. He just got a driver's license. He's trying to find work. And eventually, like, yeah, there's probably money coming his way. But I don't think people who spend time in Rikers ever get over it. It's called New York's biggest mental health institution for a reason. On an average day, almost 3,000 people with mental illnesses are detained there. And at the same time, on top of that, you're just causing wild amounts of trauma to the people in there that they're just going to bring home with them. But mentally, yo, Max, I'm not free, bro. So for, like, me to adjust from all that that happened now to, like, to society now, Max, it's kind of hard. Like, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, like, figure what, what can I do, you know? Hi there. This is Nick Pinto, a reporter and co-owner of Hellgate. Do you like our podcast so far? Would you like even more Hellgate in your life? You should subscribe. Hellgate is New York City's only worker-owned news site. Our goal is to bring our readers stories that are trenchant, playful, outraged, irreverent, and useful. Never a chore to read. Go to hellgatenyc.com slash products to subscribe. Okay, back to the podcast. 
So there's a very direct and immediate sense in which Prakash Churman was sent to spend years on Rikers Island by the judge and prosecutors who worked on his case. But judges and prosecutors work under a system of rules, and in 2020, a majority of the lawmakers in Albany tweaked those rules a little bit to make it a little less easy to send people to Rikers before they've even had a chance to prove their innocence. And that kicked off one of the defining political fights of the last few years here in New York. To get a better handle on the current bail reform debate, I spoke with Julian Harris Calvin of the Vera Institute of Justice, a nonprofit and research organization that's been focusing on these issues for more than 60 years. Here are some excerpts from our conversation. Julian, I wanted to talk with you about bail reform, which until a few years ago was an extremely niche technical corner of criminal justice policy conversations. And since that time in New York, things have changed a lot. So I wondered if you could take us back to like mid, late 2019, going into 2020 in New York and sort of what the legislative environment was then. You're right to point to 2019 because that was really a seminal moment in the you know, decades-long fight to change New York State's bail reform law. And what really made it politically palatable for folks in the state legislature, um, and at that time it was Andrew Cuomo who really passed it through his budget as governor, is that the national attention that occurred around Khalif Browder's death. And as you know, Khalif Browder was a teenager who was accused of stealing a backpack. He was sent to Rikers. He was held pretrial for three years. And he just experienced the absurd and torturous like inhumanity that is at Rikers Island. He was held in solitary. He was beaten terribly by correction officers. And so eventually his case for stealing a little backpack was dismissed and he got out and got a lot of attention because he then died by suicide. Uh, And almost everyone believes that that only occurred because of the trauma that he experienced on Rikers Island. And so it was just a really ripe moment, but not everyone could agree on what the bail reform should be. Right. And so there was a ton of wrangling up to the end of the budget season in 2019. And so what we got for bail reform was a compromise. It dramatically limited the number of alleged offenses for which a judge could set bail and hold someone until they could pay. And the idea was that Khalif was only on Rikers for so long because he was too poor to pay the bail. The other reason that a lot of folks pointed to were the racial disparities in our pretrial jail population statewide. And it worked. You know, our jail populations plummeted statewide up to 40 percent. And then when we look at Rikers specifically, the jail population was 20,000 people in the 1990s, it got down to 3,800 people, which is incredible. But why that really says something is bail reform can help us depopulate our jails so poor and black and brown New Yorkers aren't simply languishing in jail because they're too poor to pay. But it also moves the ball forward on closing Rikers Island Because just before bail reform passed, the city passed legislation that demands 
that Rikers Island be closed by 2027. And so we need to get our population down to 3,300 in order to close Rikers. Those 3,300 folks will be then held at smaller, more humane jails in the boroughs. So bail reform is really what will make that happen. And continuing to protect bail reform will make closure of Rikers happen. Otherwise, we're not going to see it. But so even before this bail reform package that was passed in 2019 went into effect at the beginning of 2020, there were already rumblings from then NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea, state Republicans, other law enforcement officials, some prosecutors were sounding the alarm that this was a mistake and that it was going to have consequences in terms of crime and public safety. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that played out. Um, It played out just like I said, (laughs) you know, people who were against bail reform during the negotiations around the new law, they were saying the streets are going to run red with blood. Everyone's going to get out and they're going to be axe murderers. Then it passed in 2019. And we saw judges start to pretty quickly by the October, November, they were starting to implement bail reform. They were starting to release people who were in on cases that were not eligible for detention on bail. And even before that started, around October, November, every time there was some kind of crime that happened in New York City or in other cities or rural places in the state, law enforcement would say, this was because of bail reform. And God love you all at Hellgate. But the media was incredibly negligent in just taking what these law enforcement, tough on crime proponents were saying about crimes happening. And so folks were just hearing this since April 2019. and. Then we hit the pandemic, right? And what we saw alongside the effects of the pandemic was a national increase in certain kinds of crimes, particularly violent crimes and gun crimes. And that just gave those anti-bail reform voices something else to say that was baseless, right, in terms of data. But if you take a step back and you look at the data if we look at pre-bail reform rearrest rates and post-bail reform rearrest rates, and by that I mean people who are out pending trial, are they getting rearrested for violent crimes or gun crimes? What we see is the rearrest rates, though an imperfect measure, it shows that the folks who are out pre-trial are not the people who are being rearrested, as the media says, on these gun crimes or on violent crime. In fact, only 1% of people who were released pretrial on a gun charge were then rearrested during the pretrial period on a gun charge. And also New York bail reform cannot be responsible for the fact that Fort Worth is seeing gun crimes go up, right? Anchorage is seeing gun crimes go up. It's happening everywhere. But again, that is such a nuanced conversation. And we're leading up to the election season, right, in 2020, the midterms that we just saw in 2022. So this became an easy political soundbite, and it has an effect, and they're seeing that in the news. So you blame the media, which I've done a certain amount of that myself in my writing about this. I wonder on the other side of it, whether you feel like the reform advocates who had championed legislation in the first place adequately anticipated the pushback did you have the tools you needed at the time to, to push back on that argument? Yeah, I think you are 100% hitting the nail on the head. 
we failed. The advocacy side failed. The Democratic leadership in Albany who passed bail reform and put their careers out there to pass bail reform, they failed, right? Democratic leadership needed to be ready for the onslaught and the success of Willie Horton-like political maneuvering and narrative strategy, which we've known since, what was it, in the 80s, Willie Horton basically helped Bush win, (laughs) right? But instead of being like, let's wrap our arms around public safety, New York Democratic leadership has backpedaled on bail reform, right? And just to get a little more granular there about sort of these successive waves of rollbacks, there was a push for that in the first legislative session after bail reform was passed, right? What was the resulting legislative compromise in in that first session in 2020? So they added about 25 alleged offenses for which a judge could set bail. And so the original bail law basically said almost all misdemeanors and some nonviolent felonies as well, right, are ineligible for bail, meaning you pretty much have to release them. You could set conditions like electronic monitoring, curfew, drug treatment, check in with a pretrial or probation officer, all kinds of things that you can set to kind of just like make sure that they're stable. What the first rollback did was say, eh, we actually need to expand that list. They expanded that list of folks who could be held on bail instead of mandatorily be released and giving judges the discretion to set conditions to help make sure that the court's keeping an eye on them and they're getting what they need to be stable. And remember, this happened a few months after bail reform actually went into effect. So there was no data to say that this was necessary. This was a political decision. It was not a sound policy decision based on an actual identified need or a data-informed need. Then we had another set of rollbacks where they added a bunch of other caveats, right? One you might hear if you are a political dork like those of us on this podcast, they added this harm plus harm provision. Basically, if you're in on something that has caused a harm to a person or an entity, you get released, usually because you have to, um, under the new bail law. And then while you're waiting to go to trial, you cause some other harm to a person or entity. Now, your second arrest, that time the judge can say, you know what, I'm holding you on bail, even though the charge itself is not bail eligible. You did harm plus harm. You go to jail unless you pay. And one thing I should note is that the bail reform law in 2019 actually codified a court requirement, right, that said that bail is supposed to be affordable. The judge is supposed to consider your financial circumstances and set a bail that you actually can pay and get out. But that is not how it's been happening in practice. And that's why so many poor people are stuck in jail um, because they cannot pay unaffordable bail. So this brings us up to the present moment, mostly, where we have a conversation where Governor Kathy Hochul and other people are saying, look, we agree with you. Money shouldn't be a part of the picture. And New York at the moment doesn't permit any reason for setting bail other than to ensure a return to court. Maybe we need to be able to put people in jail based on our sense of whether they might be dangerous in the future. Is that a reasonable concession? Other states do that? If we look at data, let's look at New Jersey. They passed their own bail reform law and they have a dangerousness factor. If you look at their numbers of rearrest, pretrial, and our post 
New York bail reform rearrest, you see very similar rearrest numbers. And so what that tells us is that we haven't necessarily failed in passing a bail law that does not have a dangerousness calculation because we're getting the same results without it. I would say also that when Governor Hochul suggested in this year's budget proposal to change the bail law, she said that this is not going to actually change crime rates, right? Yeah, which is quite a a thing to say about the policy initiative you're pushing. This will have no effect on the thing that I say that it's about. Right. It flags that this is a politics issue. She's also looking to remove what's called the least restrictive means standard, which basically tells the court when someone comes before you at arraignment and you're deciding whether or not to remand them, which means just hold them outright, pretrial, set bail or give them release with release conditions, you need to set the least restrictive means necessary to reasonably assure their return to court. She is proposing to just eliminate all of that. If this passed, judges would have no direction in the bail law. It just says, set bail, don't set bail, do what you want, right? (laughs) So that's actually rolling back the original bail law, not inserting a dangerousness factor, but backdooring dangerousness for judges who want to do that without holding them to what dangerousness should be and how they should assess it. If we actually follow Hochul's lead on this, we're going to have a bail law that is even worse in terms of its effect on jail populations and people of color and poor folks than what we had pre-2019. This whole story, the story of bail reform, the story of the push to close Rikers, began under Mayor Bill de Blasio. And between then and now, we have a new mayor, Eric Adams. And I wonder if you could contrast the way the two of them have approached these issues. I would say that... The mayor, Mayor Adams, has supported in the past these kinds of criminal justice reforms. When he was in Albany, when he was borough president, he actually supported a lot of what progressive Democrats upstate or in Albany and what Mayor Bill de Blasio supported, right? And he has said recently he supports closure of Rikers. But we also see that while he says we're supporting closure of Rikers, and we're, we want to hit the deadline, we are actually on track to increasing our jail population to a point that we cannot close Rikers Island. And they're not giving a solution for how do we decarcerate, right? Jail population is going to balloon. And then we look at his budget, right? We see that he is pretty much maintaining the Department of Correction budget, the New York Police Department budget, but cutting the kinds of supports and services that are proven to keep people out of our courts. And if they get to our courts, keep them from coming back. (laughs) The mayor's preliminary budget, which has not passed yet this year, decreases funding significantly for Department of Mental Health and Hygiene. That's 26.7% decrease. It's massive. That's huge. The Department of Youth and Community Development by 21.3%. The Department of Housing Preservation and Development We have an affordable housing problem, 10.2% decrease, social services, a 5.3% decrease, homeless services, 4.1% decrease. And then we look at what we're spending at the Department of Corrections. He's adding $35 million, which is 1.3%, but chalk that up to inflation, right? 
it's still not a decrease like everyone else deals with. All these other departments have inflationary issues. They're getting decreased compared to last year. Personnel cost, 88.5% of the budget, right? Which is up slightly from last year. And then we know that this is a workforce that does not come to work. (laughs) They do not come to work. We have significantly more correction officers than we have people incarcerated. We do not need all of those people. And though absenteeism has declined recently, their absence rate for uniformed Department of Correction staff has tripled since pre-pandemic levels. And it costs $550,000 in a single year to hold one single person on Rikers Island. $550,000 a year could house so many New Yorkers, particularly the ones that need supportive housing and services from Department of Social Services, from the Mental Health and Hygiene Department, from the Youth Development Department. It is a small fraction of $550,000 to house folks and give them the services they need for a year. So we see what he's thinking about in terms of closing Rikers Island and how to get there. And it's not by funding the kinds of city services that will get people out of jail, keep people out of jail, and close Rikers Island. Julian Harris-Calvin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This has been really informative. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Hellgate Podcast. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. Support our work by subscribing at hellgatenyc.com. Our editorial team is Adlin Jackson, Max Rivlin-Nadler, Christopher Robbins, Esther Wong, Katie Way, and me, Nick Pinto. Nadia Teichelster is our business manager. Lauren Vespoli is our producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find their music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutch Phrase Studio. Special thanks to Prakash Churaman and Julian Harris-Calvin. For more Hellgate, subscribe to the Hellgate podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.